is no growth in comfort and no comfort in growth. Business today typically values and promotes leaders for their subject expertise. Leaders who have command of the details and execute based on knowledge and experience are highly respected. However, to grow as a leader, you have to get out of your comfort zone. That means learning to lead without just being the expert. Learn to gain the trust and respect of a team that might know more than you do. Get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information. Develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. I'm Wanda Wallace. And today we're going to have two parts to our show. The first part I'm going to talk with yet another executive leader inside PwC, Jennifer Allen. And we're going to talk about her experiences of transition. And then the second half of the show is to talk about this all-important topic of diversity and what does it take to really make it work. And Jennifer has some fabulous experiences. So two halves. So Jennifer Ellen is my guest today. She is PwC's PricewaterhouseCoopers Diversity Strategy Leader in the U.S. She's responsible for designing programs to retain, develop, and advance the firm's diverse professionals and an expert in both gender, LGBT, and work-life issues. She's spearheaded PwC's Enhanced Parental Leave Policy and launched a bunch of programs, including a thing called Full Circle, which is about helping parents come back who want to do an on-ramp after having taken some time off from work. Um, she's instrumental in involving being involved with PwC's talks with Sheryl Sandberg and is an expert on the Lean In Org and communicating with confidence. Now, prior to joining PwC, Jennifer was a senior consultant at Catalyst and advised a number of Fortune 500 clients on how to to deal with the diversity agenda. She's a recipient of several awards, including the 2016 Ted Child's Work-Life Excellent Awards from Working Mother Media and also the 2008 Crossing Borders Awards from the Feminist Press. So, Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Wanda. I am looking forward to this. So the first part that I want to talk to you about is your career in general, and then we'll move on to the topic I know that's near and dear to your heart, which is what does it really take to make diversity work within a corporation? So let's talk about you first. And you made a couple of major transitions in your career. One was the move from being catalyst and a consultant to being inside PwC and driving the agenda there. So what was that transition like? How much risk was involved? And why did you decide to do it? Yeah, I would definitely say that was my first really big transition point. And it was very scary, right? Catalyst was this small organization. It was run predominantly by women. It was very cozy and comfortable. I'd been there seven years. I was quite senior. Um, got an opportunity to work with lots and lots of different companies on the consulting side. So saw many different um, organizations and, and had a lot of fun in terms of the actual work itself. Um, and then PwC was my client. So what was nice was I had an opportunity to sort of peek into PwC before jumping over, and I had done a big consulting project with their uh, chief diversity officer at the time, Tony Riccardi, on how they could diversify their partnership. And uh, it was, so it was the perfect time for me to make the change from being a consultant who gave lots of advice to actually executing and seeing if I could actually take my own advice to make change. 
Um, but PwC was a much bigger organization. It was obviously very corporate. Uh, Catalyst was actually a nonprofit. Um, it was a partnership, which is a very complicated structure in terms of how do you navigate through uh, and actually make decisions when you're not a partner. Uh, and it was a big leap, but my daughter at the time was starting kindergarten, and I remember thinking that we were both ready for sort of a new adventure. <laughs> <laughs> that is fabulous. Yeah, and, and, and it turned and, out great. I mean, it was exactly sort of what I needed. And, you know, that first year was very energizing. I remember I had a 100-day plan of, like, what I was going to do, which my mother thought was hysterical. She was like, what are you, the president? Like, I had plotted out, you know, what I was going to do and how I was going to learn and who I was going to talk to. And I think that in new organizations in particular for those kinds of transitions, you know, you don't make any assumptions that you know how things work, which is great. I think sometimes when you make transitions within an organization, you forget that uh, and don't do that sort of diligence around really getting to know the key stakeholders and who do you need to influence along the way. All right. Now I can't resist this one. What did the first 100 days look like? Because we all talk about having a 100-day plan. Very few people I know actually execute against that plan. So what did it look like? I was a little nerdy. (laughs) Well, my first thing was I needed to figure out who – I needed to know. So I would set up, you know, hour meetings every day with everybody. Like I'd fill the whole, you know, eight, nine hours of of meeting person to person. And I worked with my boss to to brainstorm the list of people who she recommended I talk to. And then every time I talked to someone, I asked them for two more people. And I asked them all the same questions. So I remember, you know, agonizing over my questions. But one of the most important questions was, who, what was a change initiative at PwC that really worked and why? Because oh, I felt wow. like that's what diversity was fundamentally, right? It was change management. And I wanted to know examples of change. And it didn't have to be around human capital issues. It could have been about any change. Um, and then who, who drove that change, you know, in terms of the team? And what did they do that was successful that I could learn from? And then I always said, you know, what are the... Um, I don't know if I called it mistakes, but it was, what do you wish the diversity team would do that they're not doing to try to get some of the complaints, you know, from the system out? Mm -hmm. You know, across the whole host of guests that I have talked to, that latter question is a very common thread for people going through transitions. You know, tell me what it is my team is doing really well and telling me what it is you wish my team was doing that they're not doing. So, but I love this notion that you start with kind of a more conceptual, what change initiatives have you seen and what has worked and why? And then who's really involved in making it happen? Who drove it? Great question. Yeah, I wanted to understand the culture. And I knew that because it was such a big place and a decentralized place, too, um, you know, that, that it was going to be important for me to have examples to build on, that I wasn't going to start from scratch. So did people give you good examples? Did you get great stories out of yes, this? Yes, they did. Um, and actually, our recruiting function at the time was an example of a very positive change. They had changed a lot about the way they had hired people and the branding of PwC and how they interacted with students. And so that was a great model for me to see. Um, and then there had been some really interesting changes on the business side uh, that people, yeah, were quite good about. And then people were incredibly honest about what they thought was wrong with the diversity team, <laughs> which was helpful for me to get all that feedback right away. 
It is, it is very, very helpful. Now, with you, so you had given advice to PwC about what you thought they needed to do to drive the female partnership. Were there moments when you felt like your advice is not going to work in all this transition? Um, I think that I spent a lot of time then, and I even do now, trying to figure out how many partners you need in a room to make a decision. And I think it's the decision-making process here that was the most challenging from the beginning. Um, And there is a bias, I think, in partnerships in particular towards sort of collegiality and a lot of collaboration. And while certainly not consensus, a sort of sense of everyone needs to be in the loop and included. And so for me, a lot of you know, pushing forward my initiatives are really trying to figure out who are the mandatory stakeholders, who are some nice-to-have ones to keep in the loop, and then who can you um, eliminate, honestly, just because all of those opinions tend to bog things down rather than accelerate change. So is there an answer to how many partners you need to make a decision? No. I mean, there's no one answer. You know, it very much depends on the event. But I remember uh, just as a recent example, you know, PwC and many other companies, I think it was um, uh, nearly 400, signed on to an amicus brief in support of marriage equality, you know, for LGBT inclusion. And um, PwC had never done that before. And I remember feeling very strongly that we didn't want to bring this decision to our entire U.S. leadership team, which was probably about 18 partners at the time, because I just felt like we'd never get it through, and it was going to take forever, and they weren't meeting altogether until after the deadline, and so I really strategized with my boss about, you know, the people who had to be part of it because of their function, so the human capital leader, the government affairs leader, obviously, our um, you know, general counsel in terms of a legal perspective on this, the CEO had to decide he was signing our name as a firm, and um, we came up with eight people. <laughs> it was the absolute minimum, um, and had private meetings with each of them. Yeah. And then you know, went to the CEO and said, we've got these eight functions on board, um, And we thought this was not something that had to go to the entire team. Now, what's interesting, of course, is when the entire team found out about it and once we did it, there were some other members of the team who said, you know, why wasn't I consulted? And at least we had a reason, which was that it it didn't touch your function, right? And that this was not something that was going to be consensus. We knew there'd be some people who would be extremely excited that we were making this public stand and taking um, a great position in the marketplace. People talked about being on the right side of history and whatnot. And we also knew there'd be people who disagreed, you know, on the Mm -hmm. merits of it, um, and that we were going to get some negative criticism, and we were okay with that, too. Okay, and so did you get pushback on that one? Did people agree that it was, I mean, did they kind of come on board eventually, or how much disarray yeah. was there? I mean, I think they did, but I think, again, this preference that we wanted everybody to sort of talk it through, um, okay. you know, isn't, it isn't logical always to have everybody debate everything, Right. So so we said, you know, for the decision-making and the deadline and the timeliness of this, we really had to get the key stakeholders, and we chose it, you know, by function. It wasn't a huge pushback, but it was just interesting because people were like, you know, how come this didn't come to the whole group? Yeah. Um, and again, I think it would have slowed it down. I think we would have made the same decision ultimately, um, but it would have slowed down the process a lot. So, Jennifer, I get the sense that there's a very thoughtfulness about who absolutely, at a minimum, has to be involved or else will come derailed. Um, what's the right format for the company that you're in and the culture that you're in and the issue that you're dealing with 
to involve how many people under what circumstances, a lot of thoughtfulness. And my guess is that where you started your career with PwC in terms of talking to all of those people for the first 100 days really helped you understand how who to involve and how to involve. Is that a fair statement or not? Yeah, no, it was, it was critical. And, and, you know, all of the ways, listening to lots of people in different functions um, and different parts of the firm describe the culture, um, describe how things get done, um, when things are successful, who decides something is successful, like what are the metrics that, that seem like change has happened, was incredibly, incredibly helpful. And also, for me, I, I remember so vividly, feedback about what counted as responsive. You know, Catalyst was a much smaller organization. We did a lot of things face-to-face. You'd walk over to someone's desk. People didn't travel a lot. Um, it was very central. You had lots of access to the senior leaders. And it was so different here. You know, everyone was on planes and at engagements and much harder to get their attention even. Um, so responding to email and who do you copy and all that stuff. I mean, I felt like I, I was learning such operational kinds of basics. And in fact, I remember um, somebody complained to my boss that I wasn't responsive enough to his request. And, you know, I, I was shocked at how many emails I got every day because um, it was so different from Catalyst. <laughs> the number right. of people asking for things. Um, and this guy asked me for something, and I didn't know the answer, so I went to go find the answer, and I didn't respond to him for like 48 hours. And, you know, what my boss said is you have to respond immediately and say, I don't know the answer. I'm looking it up. I'll figure it yeah. out and get back yeah. to you. Yeah, yeah. So were there moments in this transition from a small, comfortable place where everybody's a bit on the same mindset and you know each other and you've done really good things together? Were there moments in transitioning to PwC that you really doubted whether you'd made the right decision or not? Um, you know, th- there was a lot more travel. The hours were much longer. And while I thought it was very energizing, I did feel like it was the right thing for me. It was, I had learned everything I was going to learn at Catalyst. And for me, learning is a very big driver of satisfaction at work. And so I, I was really ready to make a move. There were definitely times when, you know, again, the hours were just so much later and um, there were more pressures uh, in the beginning where I thought, wow, I, ha- I really had it. I had a pretty cozy gig there. <laughs> Adalist. Um, so I don't think I ever got to like regretting to make the move. Like I felt like the trade-off was worth it. Um, I also had a lot more financial security by coming, you know, inside a uh, corporate environment. Right. But um, it was definitely a change, um, a lifestyle yeah. change from just the pace of work perspective. And, you know, each time we've had a new CEO, I've now, we have uh, our third, Tim Ryan, that has also changed. So, so that sort of pace of, of things has, you know, kept increasing over time. Yeah, yeah and it's challenging yeah. sometimes. Yeah, I remember and my transition from, uh, many of you may know, I started my life as an academic, and then I moved into administration, and then from administration, I've moved into private consulting. And I had a colleague come back to me several years ago from the academic side to say, geez, Wanda, I never understood what you were saying about the pace. I get it now, yeah. and I'm really sorry. <laughs> so it's, there's some gratification in understanding that there is a different lifestyle in different places. Okay, so Jennifer, how about confidence? How did your confidence hold throughout all this transition? Were there wobbles, or were you kind of comfortable with it all the way through? Well, 
I think that while I was learning and very aware of how much I didn't know about PwC, what I always appreciated about the firm was they really respected my credentials as an outsider, as a consultant who had seen lots of different organizations, and they're always focused on taking things to the next level and wanted to know best practices and what were other firms and companies doing. And um, I always felt very that my experience and insights from Catalyst were very valued in the firm, and that really helped my confidence a lot, okay. actually, um, because they took that expertise seriously. And I, and I do think one of the challenges... In this transition, the biggest you sort of talked about risk was that while I, you know, knew a bunch of the leaders because of my work um, on the consulting side, what you can never truly know is are people really committed on the inside, right? Like everybody says the right things about diversity. Diversity is such a core part of a lot of companies' values now um, that it's hard to evaluate, I think, from the outside, but do they really mean it? Like, do they put their money where their, you know, words are? Like, does, is the team invested? Is it respected? Do you, do you get people's time and attention? Can you, you know, make initiatives change, you know, or do they just keep saying they want change and then not really? And I think that was the biggest risk, and I had to figure that out over time and luckily found, you know, a really strong group of committed people and then, you know, tons of challenges, obviously, which is why we're, I'm still here and still motivated to try to move forward this agenda. But I think, um, you know, I remember being nervous, though, um, especially advising senior leaders who were much older than me at the time. And at this point, I would go to my father. My father is a big mentor of mine, and he was a CEO in business. And, you know, I'd say, you know, I need to tell somebody to do X, Y, and Z, and how are they going to take me seriously? And he would always say, you've been telling me what to do your whole life. It should be fine. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. Since he was my target demographic of older white men <laughs> in leadership. He was a very helpful sounding board on lots of, lots of times. Yeah. I know from, from various stories with you, how much of an influence your father has been in terms of a, a sounding board for you on a variety of things. So Jennifer, you talked about um, coming in and doing the first 100 day plan and all the interviews that you did and all the people that you talked with. Now, that helps you build your network. But how important, I mean, have there are there other things that you've done to build your network and how important was building a network really for your success at the end of the day? Critical, absolutely critical. And I think one of the, the most fun things for me working at Catalyst and starting there was that I spent a significant amount of my time interviewing senior women on why they were successful, right? We did all these research projects and consulting projects and, um, the theme throughout was the network, the power of the network, um, keeping up with your network, maintaining the depth and connectiveness of your network. And so I knew that was um, absolutely baseline. I didn't, you know, it was not subtext. <laughs> I knew it as, as significant advice that I heard over and over again. So, you know, I have relationships as a element of my to-do list. Like I literally have it on the piece of paper or now the file, um, that I look at every single day when I start to think about my priorities. And, you know, I have, who should I reach out to? Who should I call? Um, who should I go to lunch with? Um, who have I not spoken to, um, both inside and outside the firm? And I do think one of my strongest networks is my now Catalyst network. Many of my colleagues, where we all were trained at Catalyst, went to work 
for other organizations and companies and firms. And we get together regularly as a group and one-on-one to talk about the challenges we're seeing in the marketplace and sort of brainstorm what are we doing that we think works. And we're very honest with each other, you know, about the problems, if you will. Um, and it's a great group of people to um, to keep in touch with because they really, really keep you on your toes and aware of best practices and whatnot. So, Jennifer, I love this. this. The network is on your daily to-do list. So who do you need to speak to? Who do you need to reach out? Who do you need to have coffee or lunch with? And there's both an internal and an external drive of that, the external helping you keep up to speed with the trends and the what's working and not working, what other people are doing, and so forth. So how much time in any given week do you spend on the network? Guestimate. Yeah, I'd say like 20%. 2025, Great. depending on what I'm trying to get through um, so that okay. I don't just drown in tasks, right? Um, because then there's always, you know, the deadlines around document production and presentations and, you know, meetings. <laughs> yes. And I tried to make sure that that doesn't overwhelm. Um, yeah, maybe 25% actually is sort of where I, is my aspirational goal. Okay. All right, fair enough. All right, before we take a break, I have to turn to talk about influence. Now, you've talked a little bit about how you've had influence in a couple of places, particularly around getting the sign-up for um, one initiative that you talked about before. But tell us about a time when you've really had to persuade senior people to do something and what's been the secret to making it happen. Yeah, and in a partnership, you know, influence is so important. Um, because it is not as hierarchical as a company where it's, if the CEO says it, it's done. Um, Never works that way in a company anyway, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I always, I always feel like there's a little bit more of at least the illusion that that could happen. Um, I think that one of our strategies, and I will give my whole team credit for this, it's not just me, is that we're very thoughtful about engaging key leaders early. So there's the current set of leaders that you need to influence and make sure that we're um, understanding things from their point of view, understanding what motivates them, presenting material in a way that would resonate with them. You know, our leaders are very analytical, financial types, so lots of numbers and statistics and whatnot. But also then the storytelling around it that's compelling and memorable. But also future leaders. So when I even think about our new CEO, Tim Ryan, you know, we... Someone just told me recently as a compliment that he seemed very fluent in diversity, which I was very excited about. And I thought to myself, right, because we had targeted Tim, you know, five years ago as a superstar leader. We didn't know he'd be the senior partner, but it was, you know, possible. Um, And engaged him in our programs, asked him to speak at our events, um, had him interviewed by the media on these topics so that he has a certain comfort um, with it and that we could engage with him around what we thought was important because we knew he was, you know, moving on up, if you will. And so that kind of like asking people to be involved regularly who you think are super influential to the agenda, getting them to say the words publicly, what they care about diversity, figuring out what they do care about, but having them be those spokespeople. So a lot of the influence work is just really about being behind the scenes, right? Like I don't want to be writing the op-ed about diversity because of course I'm a usual suspect that I would be for women's advancement. I want my CEO writing it. 
So making those requests, um, putting those options in front of them, I think is really, really important. Um, and, you know, it's a lot of strategizing. So who are we going to ask to speak at this event? Who are we going to ask to attend that one? Um, who are we going to ask to be on this task force or committee or whatnot? And, and luckily, you know, our most senior leaders, it hasn't been such a hard sell. Um, I think, again, you know, diversity is a very compelling business case in our profession because people are such an important part of what we do and, um, you know, we're not manufacturing and, or whatnot. And, um, and the talent pools from which we draw are diverse, particularly around gender, for sure, and have been for the last three decades, um, but increasingly around race and ethnicity as well. Great. Fabulous. I love that, Jennifer, the thoughtfulness that five years ago you targeted someone that you thought was going to be an up-and-coming leader, and they happened now to be your senior partner. And so you've had five years to cultivate the relationship, bring them on board. And I, I love the notion that you get people speaking on behalf of the issues you care about so that they have an opinion, an informed opinion, a thought-out opinion, but they're then ready for the game, ready for the gig. <laughs> and he's been amazing. He's great. Yeah. It's fabulous. Okay, so we're going to take a break. I'm talking with Jennifer Allen. Jennifer is PricewaterhouseCoopers Diversity Strategy Leader, who's responsible for a whole host of programs that involve their diverse professionals and advancing them, an expert on gender, LGBT, and work-life issues, and a host of awards to her name. And the issue here that we've been talking about is Jennifer's own transition from being a consultant in a small, I'm going to say cozy, very female-centric environment at Catalyst to being in a big corporate environment that's very corporate and very partnership driven and what it's like to navigate that transition. And part of that has to do with making sure that the net worth you have around you is a very thought out one, that you understand what they're thinking and what motivates them and how you bring them on board for the issues that you want to drive change on. So now we're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about Jennifer's view on what does it take to make diversity really work. And I'm going to give you the heads up that I think PwC in the U.S. is doing some of the best work I've seen anywhere around making this successful. So join us after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. What does a visual workplace mean to you? How does it contribute to operational excellence? And what steps do you take to put it powerfully in place? 
Listen to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense to find out. Each week, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, shares tools and strategies to help you make the workplace speak at a glance without saying a word. Learn to work safer, faster, better, and at far less cost no matter what business you're in. Tune in to The Visual Workplace every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Jennifer Allen. Jennifer is PricewaterhouseCoopers Diversity Strategy Leader, responsible for all sorts of programs and events and episodes that help to retain, develop, and advance the firm's diverse professionals. Now, I've known Jennifer for a number of years, and I've known a number of the practices that they're doing in PwC, particularly in the U.S., and I have to tell you that I think it's among some of the most effective practices. So this next part of the show, I want to talk about what they're doing and how they're doing it. So we've talked a bit about Jennifer's transition from being a consultant into being a corporate and what it was like to build that network and to learn to navigate the organization and decide how many partners it takes to have on board in order to get anything decided. So now I want to talk about diversity in general. So Jennifer, I want to frame this in a slightly different way. Instead of talking about gender per se, which I know the two of us can spend a long time talking about, I want to talk about the culture on a team and creating an environment where it's safe for people to be themselves, to ask for what they need, to manage their lives, to be known as a whole person for their whole component, not just for a single component, and where trust is a bit of a norm and you feel like you belong. So in effect, what I call an inclusive culture. So you've seen a lot of managers, you've seen a lot of practices, both as a consultant and now at PwC. What do you think that really managers do that makes a difference in the culture they create around themselves? Well, you know, a lot of the research around what is the benefits of diverse teams, right, is this notion that you can avoid groupthink, you know, that a diversity Mm -hmm. of perspectives and having people bring their whole selves to work, um, you know, gets you to a better decision, a better output in the end. But one of the things that I think we don't talk about as explicitly around that is that that's because there's more dissent and disagreement, right? It's, it's that diversity brings more people questioning why you've done something one way. And I think that really effective managers who create very effective teams manage dissent well, um, what do you do when people disagree? How do you air lots of opinions? How do you respect a diversity of opinions? And then how do we slow things down sometimes to take the extra time to get all of those points of view on the table? Um, so when it's around hiring, how do we you know, take a little longer to get the right candidate to value all of those differences instead of just sort of 
you know, blindly checking off things on your to-do list and, and sort of getting to the task at hand. So it takes a lot more communication, I think. I think that leaders have to role model that behavior. So a willingness to, to disagree and to say, I don't know, or to question things. Um, and the respect to solicit points of view, even if they're not all equally being shared. And that's where I think, you know, some of the gender dynamics happen in terms of men sort of dominating conversation and women not. Um, And as a leader, you need to draw out those perspectives and not just assume they'll all get out at the same rate. So can you give me an example? You don't have to name anybody, but give me an example of what an ideal leader is doing in this space. So you said they um, are comfortable airing differences of opinions and they role model that. But practically, what does that really look like? Yeah, I think that, you know, one of the hard things with knowledge workers in general, right, and you talk a lot about expertise and sort of being a generalist versus being a specialist is that, you know, one of the ways in which we try to say that we know what we're talking about is you say it very definitively. (laughs) You know, you lead sort of with your expertise and that you know everything. And I think that when leaders are a little bit more open about we're trying to get from point A to point B, we want to do it the best way, this is how we've done it in the past, and we all need to work together to get there, and I'm open to suggestions for how to do it better or how to do it differently or things you see that I might not see because you're with, you know, the more junior folks at the client and I'm only hanging out with the senior folks in the client, like, like explicitly stating that our goal is to have everyone contribute, um, no matter what their level, no matter what their experience, you know, at, at their highest uh, contribution level. And I think that's where also, you know, we talk a lot about generational diversity and millennials and, you know, using that insight where people are new to a, to a team to say, you know, well, why do we do it that way? Like ask, listening to all those questions. And I was just actually, I've actually uh, launched a podcast called Pursuit of Happiness. That's been a really fun um, effort at the firm, but I've been interviewing teams about people and how do they create it. And my last team said they feel like a family. And I said, you know, how do you create that family structure? And part of it is they do things together. So they eat lunch together. Um, they're all at the client. Um, they try to celebrate milestones together, like people's birthdays. This time um, I was there for someone's birthday celebration. Um, you know, learn about each other as people so that then when things come up on the job, um, you know, there's already that sort of comfort and trust Uh, And I just thought, I was very impressed with how explicitly they were sort of doing that and talking about that as a value in addition to just the list of tasks they had to finish because this was a huge audit um, that they had to complete in a, you know, tight time frame uh, together. You know, Jennifer, that is music to my ears because my experience watching fabulous teams, what I've been calling dream teams, those teams that kind of have some diversity and they just hum. It's a great experience. You love being part of it and they achieve fabulous results. One of the things that I have seen over time is how much they spend time together. And it's that time, not just involved in the meeting and the task and the debate, but the common experiences that they create with each other that really is a bit of the foundation for building trust and inclusivity and enough comfort to challenge and debate. 
And so, you know, you're talking about these teams that have lunch together and that they celebrate birthdays and they get to learn to know each other as people is exactly consistent with that notion of common experiences. So makes me happy very well, very well. good. (laughs) And in professional services, I think people also, you know, we have these traditional busy seasons where people stay late. And um, I think that notion of like being in it together uh, is very important and and the the teams that seem the happiness happiest and the most productive, you know, um, are when the managers are sort of leading that. And then the the last thing I'd just say is that, you know, we've done a lot of work at PwC around purpose, and you know, people want their work to be purposeful. And sometimes, particularly when you're very junior, you don't see the big picture of like what are we doing for this client, right? Because you're only doing some segment of the work um, along the way. And I think that explaining that bigger picture you know, sharing insights from the client, talking about why the client is so happy that we've helped them solve whatever problem it is, is also very important. Okay. So there's kind of this common goal that we're driving to, if you want to put it in a different way, that's bigger than just the day job that I do or the immediate and understanding how I fit in that picture, how we need each other, in effect, to make that work. Yes. Okay. All right. I want to come back to something you said, that the leaders are really open to suggestions on how to do things better, and that they're, I'm assuming, actively soliciting soliciting from various members on the team, both younger as well as various other diverse members of the team, what they see and how we could do it better. And it reminds me of Robin Eli's work. I know you know Robin. Yep. And she talks about, you know, creating in a culture of a learning environment. And one of the hallmarks of a learning environment is that the managers, the supervisors actually care about doing things in a better way. So there you have as an absolute explicit example. All right. So you talked in the first segment about how you've gotten some managers engaged in this whole notion of the diversity and inclusion. Any tips from your point of view of getting them to care about this issue? And engaged in it. Well, you know, one of the things um, that I'm always excited about is that people want to hear more about what we're doing. Um, and I'd say the biggest challenge we have, again, in this very big and decentralized organization is communication about what the firm is doing um, and how people can sort of plug in and be involved and what are the behaviors we want them to drive. We have a big global initiative right now um, with the United Nations called He for She, and it's all about engaging men in gender equality in particular and sort of what are ally behaviors and how can you as a man at every level in the organization sort of contribute to inclusion. And typically that's an audience that we haven't, you know, who when you talk about diversity, they sort of tune out because they figure you're not talking about them. Mm-hmm. And it's been a great opportunity um, to sort of bring people in and say, no, no, this is every day. So it literally is about, you know, challenging double standards every day on your teams about making sure that you have a diverse network and who are you going to lunch with and meeting with and talking to and um, that people feel that they can approach you and come to you um, with challenges and how do you model those behaviors. And right now we're working to find, um, you know, a network of champions for our U.S. firm to be those kinds of ambassadors, if you will, because it's really hard. And people are, you know, very busy. I find um, people care about diversity. It just drops to the bottom of their priority list. So they either don't know how to execute it or I'm not sure what you want me to do or um, isn't the way I'm doing things fine now. 
or I'm just so busy. I can't do anything extra. So our job is to sort of say it's not extra. It's intrinsic to what you're already doing, and it's doing it with this extra insight or engagement or self-awareness about how you're leading, how you're grooming talent, how you're running your engagement, how you're being flexible, which I know is something you want to talk about later too, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, incorporating it as, as intrinsic to the role in the job. And, you know, all of our people really do work on teams and, and lots of different teams where they're moving from team to team. So, um, you know, by challenging that behavior and trying to get people to really understand what we're talking about through, you know, we do a wide range of different educational campaigns on this, uh, really helps because it is, it is core to their job. But I think they often don't feel like it is. It's just something extra that they don't have time to do. Okay, so uh, d- tell us a little bit about the kind of educational campaigns that you have done that you think have been most effective. So I get that you get a, you target leaders to be spokespersons for diversity, to write the op-ed pieces, to have an opinion, to be on stage, and that helps them kind of get with the program. I get that you're very focused on what the behaviors are, and I get this he-for-she program that targets how men can be involved in some of the agenda. How do you get people aware of the day-to-day intrinsic stuff that's going to make a difference? So we've done a lot of work for, I'd say, the last seven years with an academic from Harvard named Dr. Uh, Mazarin Banaji. And... uh, Mazarin's work is on unconscious bias, and she wrote a book called Blind Spot, The Hidden Biases of Good People. And we brought her to the firm to really talk at first to our top 100 leaders. And at the time, our focus from a diversity team perspective was really on succession planning, where we felt like we had these really great processes to identify partners for senior leadership roles within the partnership, but that somehow women and partners of color were not getting selected. So they were on all these lists, but suddenly they weren't sort of moving. And we wanted to talk about, okay, if the process works and there's a commitment to diversity, what's missing? And we felt like this notion of the unconscious bias and the blind spot was really important for this group in particular to have a deep dive into. And we actually did a four-hour session. She's very engaging and dynamic, and she created, co-created the implicit association test, which measure, measures your unconscious bias, um, has done lots and lots of research, and really talks about how our brain works in terms of taking these cognitive shortcuts. And one of the biases, I think, uh, particularly around women in leadership, is this bias that, you know, leader equals men, that we all, whether we're men or women, have this bias that when we think of a leader, we think of a man, and usually a man of a particular age and a particular gravitas and sort of executive presence, and that's because we've seen more men in leadership roles than women, and women are sort of the unusual leader, or she's a female leader, and we don't um, make that assumption about men. And so picking a woman or picking um you know, a partner of color to lead something big always feels a little riskier and it's an unconscious feeling, right? And so then there's that question of, are they ready? And, um, you know, women being promoted um, on performance and men being promoted on potential kind of disparity. And I think that those things are deep-seated and and we're not always aware of them when we say, oh, so-and-so is not ready for that role. And so Mazarin has really helped us uncover some of those blind spots, those unconscious assumptions that are sort of universal, um, and then also specific sort of to PwC or to different groups. And 
over the course of the years, we've now developed some more training for all levels of staff. We really started with our leadership group and then the partners overall and now to everyone to say what are the blind spots. And we actually created these interactive videos. There's a series of four of them. And we've just made them mandatory for all of our new hires. So when you just come into the firm, you need to understand blind spots because it really gives you a vocabulary to identify those things that you might be missing. And you can always see them in other people, but how how are you more diligent about seeing them in yourself? And then we're also making it mandatory for people who are promoted. So if you're newly promoted, you have to take this training because we want you to understand um, how your blind spots might be preventing us from achieving the kind of inclusion we want. So now lots and lots and lots of companies, Jennifer, are doing various forms of what people have called unconscious bias. You're calling it blind spots, but that preference to see one kind of person is the more ideal than the other kind of person. There's many other blind spots. A number of firms are beginning to say that isn't necessarily helping. And in fact, it's sort of getting in the way. I know a number of clients are now beginning to have data to show that the unconscious bias training is actually leading to worse bias. But you've had the reverse experience at PwC. So what's been the secret to your success? Well, I think the one thing that's true is unconscious bias training isn't the only thing you have to be doing, right? The training is not enough on its own. So we're doing lots and lots of other things in addition to it. But why I think it has been helpful here is that it creates this common vocabulary. It focuses the responsibility back on the individual to really look at their own decision-making and their own assumptions that they're they could be making in a situation. It's kind of pragmatic in terms of, you know, we say you've got to slow things down. You've got to ask some questions. You've got to, you know, have the diligence and sort of um, ability to question yourself. You know, am I, am I offering opportunities at the same rate to all members of my team? Well, you need to document and track that, right? If you just there's an availability bias, right? Like if you are the first person who comes to my mind, Wanda, and I give you every great assignment, um, then you are going to become better than the other team members, right? You're going to rise to that opportunity and other people aren't going to develop because of me. So sort of making the individual feel accountable around, I can change this, right? I can be more systemic. I can have an influence over this. Um, But then at the same time, the firm needs to look at our structures and processes too, right? And are there unintended consequences of them? What are we doing around succession planning in a broader um, point of view? Um, So it can't be just one or the other. I think sometimes people want unconscious bias training to be a magic bullet. You know, we do one training session and suddenly everybody's conscious (laughs) and never makes an assumption again. Um, which isn't true. Uh, And then we have really tried to focus people to say there are moments when these biases are more salient, right? It's not like we're walking around making so many assumptions every single minute that you can't make a decision, that then you're paralyzed with, oh, my God, maybe I'm biased. But it's when we hire, when you promote, when you think about work distribution and engagements and assignments, um, and then particularly around leadership, right, that we just have this very strong sense of whoever the historic leaders are is the model for who the new leader should be, which is prototype bias. And, you know, we need to be more rigorous about criteria and eligibility so that we open up that path and have some unusual suspects be able right. to fill those roles equally successfully. 
or at least test the opportunity for the unusual suspects. Now, I know one of the things that you do is as you're going into the promotion round, you show a short reminder about the unconscious bias. Tell us about how that goes. Yeah, so we filmed um, Mazarin uh, talking about sort of what are some of the key biases that show up um, when people are evaluating performance. And, you know, similarity bias is one of those, um, this prototype bias about, you know, who should be, whatnot, and also memory bias, um, you know, so sort of this horn's halo effect, the people who I just feel very good about and then the people who I feel kind of like made a mistake early on and, you know, we never forgive it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we find evidence, right, confirmation bias to prove that those judgments are correct. Um, and it's just a short video, but it was before you are then in that assessment meeting um, to look at everyone's performance vis-a-vis each other. And it just sort of raises the issue so that it's no longer unconscious, so that people can be like, okay, do we have a blind spot here or are we being fair to everyone? Are we, are we using the same criteria to judge everybody here? Um, and again, the more objective your metrics, so for us, a big metric is utilization or time or, um, you know, revenue and whatnot, the better, because then there's less subjectivity in that analysis. Okay. And are you seeing positive results out of this? Are you seeing that the decisions are changing in the, in these meetings? Well, you know, one of the things just back to when we were talking about targeting leaders. So, you know, Tim Ryan was part of that group of 100 um, who had that first meeting seven years ago with Mazarin. And I remember he found it very compelling personally and said, you know, it's really made me think about, you know, how I think about talent and people. And I used to sort of pride myself on being able to judge people quickly, right? I could, I could sum somebody up really quickly. And he said, you know, after this training, I'm not going to do that. And when he took over as our senior partner, he was elected and uh, took over in this July, he appointed the most diverse leadership team PwC's ever had. And I tie that back. I take total credit that it was because of that Dr. Banaji session seven years ago. But what was great about it is he said, I want a team diverse on lots of dimensions. So there's more women on this team than we've ever had before. There's more partners of color on this team, uh, women of color. So there's seven women and three of them are women of color. But he also decided to pick less tenured partners, right, who are younger because they have a different perspective than when you're a very senior leader who's been around a long time. He picked three people who were were not born in the U.S., Um, which, again, had not been a dimension of diversity that was particularly focused on. Um, He expanded the team a little bit because he wanted more functional diversity. So there's 20 um, U.S. leadership team members. And we have our first openly gay man uh, leading on that team as well. So he invited that kind of sense of this is going to be important for our decision-making. I want to hear your perspective. Please bring your perspective to the table because I picked you because of it. Great. Great. All right. And we're all going to stay tuned to see how effective this goes. And so far, I know the results have been really fabulous. Now, Jennifer, I want to shift the turn just for a minute, because I know that you have been particularly focused in the last little bit on thinking more thoughtfully about the whole notion of work-life balance. I hate that phrase because life (laughs) is work and non-work. And it is never a matter of balance. It's always a matter of integration. But tell us a little bit about what you're doing on this one. And more importantly, what are you finding? Yeah. So in client service, um, and particularly in the professional services firm environments, you know, the hours are long. 
the demands are high. There are these busy seasons where um, people are expected to work on weekends, and then there's a lot of travel uh, in addition. And so work-life dissatisfaction is a big driver of why people leave the firm. Um, and then go into industry where they really do find sort of a better balance. And so we've been very, very focused on flexibility. And that flexibility is sort of at the level of the team. And how can we increase communication about what's important to people outside of work and to equally value all of the things that people are trying to juggle outside of work. Mm -hmm. So it's not just children are like the legitimate reason that people have to leave at a certain time or you know, ask that they they need that extra time, that we're all juggling important relationships and activities and things that we want to pursue personally in addition to professionally. And I think that the culture of talking about it got a lot better. Uh, And we ran a bunch of campaigns. We called it Flexibility Squared. And, you know, what are you not going to give up this busy season, you know, and we had videos of people saying, I'm still going to go to the gym and I'm going to, you know, have dinner with my husband, you know, regularly and I'm still going to be able to do this or the other thing. I think one of the lessons, though, that we've learned is we, we put a lot of pressure on people to negotiate flexibility themselves. And in a hierarchical organization, you know, it's just tricky, right? Because people are focused on the role model above them. And so when our leaders work really long hours, which they do, um, you know, it's, it's just hard to get that message out. So one of the things we did that was sort of a, an unexpected success was that sometimes to have more flexibility, you actually need a boundary. And so we had this holiday break, I think it was 10 years now ago, where we had had a very, very busy fall and the leadership team was worried that people were going to be exhausted going into busy season and they shut down the whole firm over the holiday winter break. And everyone got 10 consecutive days off and they made a big um, commitment that there would be no, no one should work during that period and that there would be, we need to tell our clients that we're off and that it's the firm shut down and that it's this sort of boundary. And we knew it was going to be popular. People were going to like to have the time off. We gave them extra days in addition to their um, uh, vacation, and then there were the holidays. But what we heard when people came back was, this was the first unplugged vacation I've ever had at PwC. Because everybody stopped working at the same time, because I didn't feel like I was going to come back to a sea of emails, um, or that I was going to be behind when I came back on Monday. Um, I actually relaxed and had really unplugged quality time with my family. And so we started doing this shutdown regularly, and then we did one over July 4th that weekend for five consecutive days of time off so that people could plan and know, and that if we were all doing it, it could be that sort of unplugged time. And I think what we want teams to do is that same thing. So Fabulous, to protect, Yeah, like everybody gets Friday night off. Like we're just not going to work late on Friday, right? Even during busy season, we're going to let everybody have that part of their evening. We're going to, you know, have holiday calendars where everyone puts up their vacation and we're going to really respect that those vacations are sacred. Um, And so those kinds of practices at the level of the team, I think, can really make a difference. I love this, Jennifer. It's consistent with what we're seeing around the nudges, where it's not that people have to opt in. It's much more that they have to opt out. Yes. 
So exactly. creating demand, mandatory, not mandatory, but expectations from the firm that create some boundaries for people. Jennifer, I know we could keep talking for the next hour <laughs> without any trouble, but unfortunately, we are out of time at this point. So with me today has been Jennifer Allen. Jennifer is at PricewaterhouseCoopers in the diversity strategy leadership role, responsible for all sorts of initiatives, as you've heard within the firm around developing, retaining, and hiring the best talent in the firm. And Jennifer, I think of all of the stuff that comes across to me, one is the thoughtfulness with which you went into PwC to develop the network. The second is the being quite strategic about who you need to be on board and how you're going to get them on board. And the third is the way in which as a firm, you're doing very tangible, very simple, very straightforward things that make buying into this agenda an easy thing to do as opposed to a hard thing to do. So, Jennifer, thank you for being with us. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. It's a pleasure always. Next week, I'm joined by Rachel Connerly, and the topic is going to be collaborative leadership, but more and specifically, an operating system called the Collaborative Leader Operating System that has to do with how do you lead in a completely different way that's non-hierarchical. So join us next week. Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.